so uh, in the um, in the movie The Man in the Iron Mask, there's a scene. If you don't know The Man in the Iron Mask, it's a it's a novel by Alexander Dumas uh, that from the 1800s. But there's uh, it involves the Three Musketeers, and in in the in the movie, at the end, the Three Musketeers uh, and D'Artagnan, the four of them, are are about to go to battle with a firing squad. Basically, they're lined up, ready to fire. And, and they just start to storm them, and all the guns go off. And, and there's a line in there that says, Magnificent Valor. And I love that line, Magnificent Valor. And I want to stop for a second, and, and there's a whole bunch of men here today that, that chose to, to participate and, and, uh, uh, and wear their best dad shirt. And for you, I say Magnificent Valor um, because that's a, that's a big deal. Um, I, I don't like wearing shirts like that, but, um, but, but I'm, I just, there it is. Okay. I'm proud to be a dad and I'm proud to be a girl dad. And so I had no problem putting this on today. And, and, um, and so thank you for participating in that. I just wanted to have a little bit of fun, but I I bring up that magnificent valor line, uh, from the man in the iron mask, because the story of the three musketeers, I absolutely love. I love that, the, just the, the, the valor that comes in that, the, the, the bravery, the heroics that are in the story of the man in the Iron Mass, the story of the Three Musketeers. And in, in the novel, the, the 1844, four, 1844 novel, The Three Musketeers, that Alexander Dumas wrote, he uses the motto, un pour tous, or tous pour un, or one for all and all for one. And it's a battle cry for the heroes of the story. You've also heard it said as all for one and one for all. It's got several different uh, transpositions. Uh, but it's a phrase that em- emphasizes solidarity and, su- solidarity and support within a group. It, it, the group will support its members and its members will support its group. And so all for one, one for all, they come together to work unified. And I see that in the church uh, and, and I love it. I love this story because of the phrase, this idea that a group will support one another and in turn, they will support the group that inspires me to be part of something like that. And that's what the local church is to be, where we come together and and we do that. And uh, I also love it because it's got swords. And so when you add in swords, that's really cool. And you've got swashbuckling and they're, you know, they're, they're, they're fighting each other. Um, They've got some really, really cool names that I cannot pronounce on a regular basis. Athos, Porthos, and Aramis. And then awesome uniforms. And I find it funny because they're called the musketeers, but they use swords instead of muskets, but to each his own. But, but there's just some really cool things. And, and then they, they emphasize it with one for all, all for one, and magnificent valor. Something that me as a dad, I strive to be. Something that I strive to live out is to be all for one, one for all, magnificent valor. I want to be that to my girls. But as I thought about the phrase all for one and one for all, it reminds me of the attributes of God that I want to focus on today. And and what we're going to do, we're we're, we're continuing our series, God Is, and in this overarching series, we're going to go into a mini-series, a sub-series, so to speak, where I originally had planned that today we were going to look at God is the Trinity, three in one, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. 
And then I realized that you don't want to be here for three hours for us to look at God is Father, God is Son, and Holy Spirit. So we're going to spread that out over a few weeks. We're going to do a mini-series inside the series so that we can give adequate and appropriate time to each aspect of the Trinity, uh, each aspect of the three-in-one. Because when I hear all for one, it reminds me of the phrase, God is three-in-one, that they come together as one. And so, but I want you to see there's quite a bit of difference between all for one and God is three-in-one. But when I hear the phrase and the definition of, the group, the, of all for one, the group supporting its members and its members supporting the group, I am reminded of the Trinity. Because each, each person of the Trinity, each member of the Trinity, the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, while each has different roles, they work cooperatively, cooperatively together in unity to carry out God's plan. And so we'll look at that over the next three weeks, how each part, each person of the Trinity carries out the functions of, of God. And so Lord willing, we'll take the next three weeks to look at each part of that. But I want you to, I want to start with just a little background knowledge of the Trinity, because if you're like me, the Trinity can be very overwhelming when you try and look at it and listen and think about it and understand it. And what does it say in scripture? But I think we need to start with the verse. You know, we've got God is the Father, God is the Son, and God is the Holy Spirit. And there's a verse that is very near and dear to me. It's, it's one of my life verses. It's something that I want us as a church to live out that says, that gives us all three parts of the Trinity. In Matthew 28, 19 and 20, it says, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. When we baptize people that have become new believers, we, we baptize them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And then it says, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you, and behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. This tells us that God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit are very real. This is Jesus' commands to the disciples. And so naturally, as, as today's being Father's Day, I want us to begin with God the Father. But I want us to start with some essential elements of this complex entity that we call the Trinity. Because the word Trinity is actually never mentioned in the Bible. This came about a few years later in the early church as they began to process what, what this, this three-in-one is, this triune God. And so they, they, they deemed it the Trinity. But here's what I want us to look at. Some basic elements that will help you understand the Trinity. And the first thing I want us to see is that the unity of God is basic. The unity of God is basic. And what I mean by that is God is one, plain and simple. There's only one God. We don't serve a, we, we don't believe in a polytheistic religion of multiple gods. We serve one God. And this one God, when we're talking about the Trinity, we're talking about one God as a whole. And so it's very easy to, to hear three in one and think this is three parts making up one whole. And that's not the case. These, three aren't, these aren't three parts to make a whole. Each part of the Trinity, each person of the Trinity, part's not the right word for me to say there, each person of the Trinity is unique, but yet each are equal and of the same essence and being. And the three are in one. 
the unity of God. God is one. And each has a different function and role as part of this. Number two, the deity of each of the three persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, must be affirmed. Each one is the same. The divinity of the Holy Spirit and the divinity of the Son are equal in the same way and extent as the divinity of the Father. This is one of those times that when I say your finite mind cannot wrap itself around the infiniteness of God, it's okay to not fully understand the Trinity. But know that each person of the Trinity, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, are of the same substance and essence and being. They are equal. The third thing is the threeness and oneness of God are not in the same respect. The threeness and oneness of God are not in the same respect. Now, this seems contradictory. When we say three and one, and then God, oneness of God, that seems like there's two different things we're talking about there. Seems to contradict itself. But the contradiction is not real. God is three persons at every moment in time, yet he's also one as well. And we can't put this in our minds. We can't wrap ourselves around this part because we just don't function that way. But know that he's three persons all, all the time, but he's also one as well. So we cannot think of them in the same respect. We have to think of them in two different dimensions, for, the, for lack of a better word, that they're, they're, they're separate um, in this respect. This, this might be difficult to wrap your head around, but know Yes, he is one, but he's also three in one. The fourth thing I want you to see is that the Trinity is eternal. The Trinity is eternal. We've talked about God is eternal. We, we talked about that last week. If God is eternal, then the Trinity must be eternal because if we look at God is all three persons in one at all times, then that means that they were there. They've always been there. They've always been divine. And remember the verse from last week, I... I that says he is what he is and will be what he has always been. He is and was and will always be. The fifth thing is the function of one member of the Trinity may for a time be subordinate to one or both of the other members. And what do I mean by that? When I say that they're all equal, they're all equal, three and one, well, at some points in the world, one of them might become subordinate to one or both of the other members. An example of this is when Jesus came to earth to live life as a human. He put himself under the will of the Father. His purpose for coming to earth to live a perfect and sinless and blameless life was to carry out the will of the Father. And so for that time being, he was under the direction, he was subordinate to the Father. Didn't lessen any of his divinity at all. Because when we talk about Jesus Christ, we talk about him being fully human, fully divine. And we'll look at that next week a little bit closer. But, he, but for a time being, he put himself underneath the Father. And number six, and probably most important, the Trinity is incomprehensible. Meaning, we cannot fully understand its mystery. 
So go into that already confused. But no, that's okay. Because God reveals himself in many different ways at many different times. And there's going to be times in your life that God is going to reveal himself as the father. And there's going to be times that God reveals himself as the son. And there's going to be times that God reveals himself as the Holy Spirit to you. And in that moment, you're going to gain a greater understanding of that person of the Trinity. And then how in conjunction they all go together. 1 Peter 1, 3 through 12, and I'm not going to read the whole thing. I'm going to read just a portion of it. Uh, it says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. And it continues on. The passage is very long, but it continues on. And it says, To an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In the things that have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look, therefore preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And what this passage is telling us is it's telling us that God the Father sent Jesus the Son to be revealed as God's will for the salvation of the world and that the Holy Spirit is going to then guide us and empower us to preach this good news. The three coming together. John Stott puts it really, really good to kind of wrap up a little bit about what the Trinity is and then we'll move into God the Father. It says, The doctrine of the Trinity is to the Christian experience of God what grammar is to poetry. The doctrine of the Trinity is to the experience of God what grammar is to poetry. It establishes a structure, a framework, which allows us to make sense of something which far surpasses it. He continues to say, it is a skeleton supporting the flesh of Christian experience. The Christian experience of God was already there long before the doctrine of the Trinity was formulated But the doctrine casts light on the experience and helps us to understand who it is that we are experiencing. It interprets our experience of God as an experience of God. So it helps us have a structure and a framework. And so as we take the next three weeks to look at each part of the Trinity, hopefully it will allow us to see this as a whole. And one other thing I want you to see before we move into the Father to God the Father is that we get the correct understanding of what I mean when I say the word person. Because as a human being living in 2021, when I say the word person, I'm thinking of someone right in front of me. That is a person. Well, in the terminology that's used here and in the early church, the word person was used differently. When we use the word person, we're thinking of a specific person. We're thinking of a human being. But in the early church and in the Greek language, the word actually means personae, which would resemble a specific role or character. In, in a drama, in a movie, in a play, an actor might take on multiple roles or multiple persona during a specific performance or over the course of their career. So they're not changing themselves as a person, but they're taking on a different persona. And so as with the Trinity, in respect to the Trinity, 
what we have is we, when we say three different persons, we have three different persona, three different roles. The early church saw God as one being with three personas, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And I hope that helps you put it in a little bit of context and understand a little bit that when we look at what, when we look at our translations of the Bible, they do the best they possibly can. But know that in the original text, and this is why when you go to seminary, they want you to learn the original languages so that you can read it and understand in the context of what their language was saying at the time. So just put that in, in, into your mind. So how do we look at the three personas of the Trinity? How do we start with God the Father? Well, one of the great ways to do this, and we, we actually sang it this morning, is to start with what we call creeds. And we're going to take the Apostles' Creed to look at this. And the creeds are basically our, 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 our belief statements. We, there, there's several that are um, probably the most well-known. There's the Apostles' Creed. There's the Nicene-Constantinople Creed, or shortened to the Nicene Creed. And then we have, as a creed for us being Southern Baptist, the Baptist faith and message. That is our doctrinal statement of belief, um, our, our, our statement of doctrine. And so they're just, they're just a belief that support the biblical descriptions of who God is. And so know this, when we say it's the Apostles' Creed, the Apostles' Creed did not, was not written by the Apostles. It's just given that name because it was compiled by the early church as a summary of the Apostles' beliefs, their teachings, and their writings. And so they took the things that they were being taught and they, they summarized it and put it into this is our basic belief. This is our doctrine that we can stand by. And so when we look at the Apostles' Creed, it begins with, I believe in God the Father Almighty, creator of the heavens and the earth. I believe in God the Father Almighty, creators of the heavens and the earth. And then in Matthew chapter 6, Jesus teaches the disciples to begin their prayers with our Father who art in heaven. That's how we start the Lord's Prayer, right? And so we feel like we need to start with God the Father because these things do, but also because God the Father is the first person of the Trinity that's been revealed to us. When we pray our Father or we say, I believe in God the Father Almighty, we're claiming our Christian identity. By stating this, we are immediately getting to the essential context of the faith, God's Trinitarian nature. By starting with God the Father, we're automatically saying there's more, more things to this. And if we don't have this, if we don't have this Trinitarian nature, Christianity does not hold together. So let's look at a couple attributes of God the Father. The first thing I want us to see is that God, as God is Father, we can rest in the fact that God is the sovereign creator. It says that. I believe in God the Father Almighty, creator of the heavens and the earth. Ephesians 1, 3 through 4 says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him in, in love. This tells us that God the Father blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. He is the, the creator of everything. He's the creator of, of the world. If you look at Genesis 1 and you look at Genesis 2, you see the formation of the world, the universe, the heavens and the earth, and ultimately man and woman. 
all created by God the Father. Isaiah 45, 7 and 8 says, I form light and create darkness. I make well-being and create calamity. I am the Lord who does all these things. Shower, O heavens, from above and let the clouds rain down righteousness. Let the earth open that salvation and righteousness may bear fruit. Let the earth cause them both to sprout. I, the Lord, have created it. So he is telling us that he is the creator. He is the sovereign creator. But we also must see that God is self-sufficient. God is self-sufficient. Last week we talked about that God is self-existent, that he doesn't need us. But he's now self-sufficient. Psalm 57 through 12 says, Hear, O people, and I will speak. O Israel, I will testify against you. I am God, your God. Not for your sacrifices do I rebuke you. Your burnt offerings are continually before me. I will not accept a bull from your house or goats from your folds. For every beast of the forest is mine, the cattle on a thousand hills. I know all the birds of the hills and all the moves in the field is mine. If I were hungry, I would not tell you, for the world and its fullness are mine. This goes right along with the self-existence that he doesn't need us because it's all his. He created it and it's all his. I love when I'm watching toddlers and preschoolers play and what's the line that they say when they have a toy mine it's mine you can't have it it's mine especially when like it's their birthday and they open their presents and then all their friends that are at their party want to play with it and they're like it's mine the world and everything in it is God's because God created it I like to build furniture but I don't like to give my furniture or sell my furniture why because I created it it's mine. I want to keep it to myself. Plus, I'm like, you don't really want this. But, but God is self-sufficient in that he owns everything. He doesn't need anything from us. So when we look at God the Father and these three aspects of him being a self-sufficient, sovereign creator of all things, in that we see, remember I said last week that that we're going to see all these other attributes kind of jump together and and bundle together throughout everything else? Well, in this self-sufficient, sovereign creator, we see his immensity, we see his infiniteness, we see his eternal nature, we see his immutability that he cannot change. We see all of these aspects in God the Father. And I realize that for many of us in the room today that Father's Day can be a very hard day. Father's Day can be a very hard day, especially if we grew up in a home that our father was distant, our father was absent. When you hear someone or we see that God is this great, vast being who's self-sufficient, self-existent, immutable, and eternal, who doesn't need us, why would he want to do anything, have anything to do with us? We see that God is powerful because he chooses to be with us. And that's awesome. But I also know that that can bring, when you really think about it, hurt and heartache. Because for many of us growing up, we saw our fathers gain power in their careers at the expense of the relationship with us. And that makes it difficult. They sacrificed their relationships so that they could advance their careers. Or for others, our dads left us. And if God is all-powerful, how could he let our dads leave us? 
If he's all loving, how could he leave us without an earthly father figure? And then there's others of us who long to be a dad, and for whatever reason, that hasn't happened yet, and we don't understand why. And so we ask the question, why, God, if you have the power to make it happen, why haven't you? And these are very real, tough, difficult things to navigate on a day like Father's Day. But what I want you to see as we transition here to a story in the New Testament that even though these things, when we talk about God as Father, can bring up negative emotions, that this heavenly Father has a softer side. A side that is, is perfect and blameless and loves us unconditionally. And he will run towards us even when we have turned away from him. There's a story in the book of Luke that shows these attributes of God, the Father, to us. And it's a story many of you have heard, and if you haven't heard it by name, you've seen it in some form or fashion, whether on a TV show or in a movie or you've read it in a book or you just know it. And it's the story of the prodigal son. And if you don't know the story of the prodigal son, in Luke chapter 15, verse 1132, there's two brothers who had an inheritance coming to them. The younger brother wants his money now, and he received it from his father. Just, you know, how often does that happen in the world? I'm, I'm owed this. It's mine. I want it now. Give it to me. So the father gives it to him. He gathers all his belongings. He goes out into the world. And just like happens so often today, when someone young gets a lot of possessions, a lot of material wealth, they blow right through it. This son, this younger brother, lost all of his money. He blew through his money very quickly. And he found himself homeless, broke, and hungry to the point that he took a job tending to the pigs and ate alongside them the same things they were eating. He lowered himself to the lowest of the low. And then in verse 17 of this passage, he says he came to himself and realized. He woke up. I think the proper terminology in today's world, I heard this a lot this week, was he's woke. He woke up to his current situation. And said, what am I doing? He came to his common senses and realized that he was broken and at the end of his rope. So what does he do? He humbles himself and he goes back to the father, confessed that he had lost all of his inheritance and just wanted to be hired as a servant. And we read this story and we look at it and put it into a context of our lives of how often we run from God and we need to come back as the prodigal son. But so often we fail to see that the real point of the story is the father and how the father responds. Because it says when he got close to the father's house, the father got up and ran and embraced him and clothed him and had them kill the fattened calf to celebrate the return of his son. He was excited that his son was home. And then it goes on and says, the older brother gets upset at this, but the father tells him, you are always with me and all that is mine is yours, but let's celebrate because what is lost is now found. So let's focus on what the father does here. The picture of our heavenly love, father's love for us. First thing we see here is that God the father is patient. God the father is patient. He gave his son the inheritance and let him go knowing there was a greater than zero chance it was not going to end well. Because as dads, we know our kids. 
and I know which one of my kids, if I give money to, it's going to go. And which one of my kids, if I give money to, they're going to have it for a while. We know that, right? We learn who they are. The father loved his son enough to be patient with him. I've mentioned this before. I struggle with patience. But God, the father in this story, loved his son enough to let him go, take his inheritance, and make mistakes on his own. He didn't rescue him, but he made sure, and this is where the patience came in, he made sure that even though he was not going to step in and rescue him and say, don't do this, don't do this, he was there when he came home. He was there when he came home. And I bet each of you could think about a time that you had to learn a difficult lesson and you're like, if only my dad or if only my mom or if only that figure in my life had stepped in. When I bought the first car on my own, my dad was with me and he let me make a huge mistake. And I'm like, why? Why? He wanted me to see that I was an adult and I needed to be able to make these decisions on my own. He wasn't going to rescue me. And, and now, you know, 20 years later, I, I'm grateful for that because it's allowed me to make some different decisions as I've gotten older. 2 Peter 3.9 says he's patient with you. He's not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promises. Some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should, preach, should reach repentance. He's waiting for those who have not yet come home because he's a patient father. And in that, for many of us who have loved ones who are far from God, we can rest comfortably in that, that he is close to us. And he's close by waiting for those who are far from him to come home because he's a patient father. He's a patient father. He's patient because he wants to give us what we don't deserve. Which leads to the next thing is we see that we have a forgiving father. And we see forgiveness through him. In Ephesians 1, 7 through 8, it says, In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses. God the Father is a forgiving dad. Forgiveness can be the hardest thing for us to do as a believer. The hardest thing. It's against our nature, especially when the other party doesn't deserve it. When the other party has sinned against us and does not deserve our forgiveness. But think about how undeserving we are of the forgiveness that God the Father gives us. Think about how undeserving of we are of the forgiveness that God gives us. This father could have said, you blew it. You wasted everything. You're not getting anything else. But he doesn't. He runs to him and embraces him and says, my son is home. I forgive him. I just want to be with him. And that's what God wants. God doesn't need us, but God wants to be with us. So he gives us this undeserved forgiveness. And the last thing we see is that we see a father who is proud, who is proud. Scripture says he runs to his son and he didn't care what anyone thinks about him running. When I go try and run, 
I'm like worried about what people think. Like they're laughing at me because that thing is running. This man did not. And here's the thing. In Jewish culture, the men wore robes. And if they worked in the fields, they would have a slit down the side so that they could work unhindered, so that they'd have freedom to move. Well, it was against the Jewish law and custom to expose your upper thigh. It's probably a good thing to have against our customs as well, to not expose our upper thigh. But, but it was against that. It was against the law and custom. And so if he ran with this slit in the side of his robe, what was going to happen? He was going to expose his leg. And so he would be shamed. People would think he was foolish because he was going against everything that he was taught as a Jewish man. All the customs that he was taught, all the traditions, all the laws, you did not do that. And he didn't care because his son was home. He ran so that not only could he embrace him and love him and forgive him, but then he could turn around and say, for my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. Now we celebrate. And then to tell the brother, he said, it was fitting to celebrate and be glad for your brother was dead and is alive and he was lost and he was found. He found a cherished treasure and wanted to show it off. He was proud. And I think about when my girls were born and that moment when they were born and I got to hold them up for people to see them for the first time and the pride that welled up inside of me, not sinful pride, but holy cow, this is mine. And and I think about now when I see them do things that I would never have done, the pride that I have for them to be their own and to take on challenges with a vengeance. I well up with a pride of a father and I want to tell everyone. And it's in that moment that I'm thankful for Facebook because I can. I'm proud and God is proud of us. When a lost comes home, he loves and he forgives and then he shows us off shows us off and that's why we want to baptize it so that we can show off what God has done because we know he's wanting to show us off he's wanting to show us off that's what we see in this prodigal son story but there's one other thing I want us to 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 know that I believe is super important here about God as the father because in our culture today where fathers are so absent and that could mean and I learned this lesson several years ago um, in, my, in my first two years of teaching school, the first year I taught in school, I was in a very, very low socioeconomic, poor, poverty-driven district. And dads were absent because they were off addicted to drugs, they were in prison, or they had just left and abandoned. My next year, I, I, I moved to a district that was on the opposite end of the spectrum, very affluent that money was not an issue for many of these, most of these kids. And I'm like, well, they won't have those problems. And guess what? They did. Because their dads were absent off traveling five days a week for work, working long hours, never turning off their job. And so they dealt with similar things of absentee fathers. 
and our generations upon generations are dealing with that. And this is what you need to know about God the Father, is that the Father is our anchor. He is, he was, and he will always be. He will be there. We look to our fathers to be the rock of our families, the anchor to our foundation, but unfortunately it's not. But with our heavenly father, it always is. He is our anchor. And Hebrews 6, 17 through 19 says this. So when God desired to know more convincingly to the heirs of the promise of the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath. So that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, he, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us because we have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain. God is always gonna be there. He is not an absentee father. He's a father that loves us unconditionally. He's a father that forgives us and he's a father that is proud of us and he is there for us. He is there for us. And I wanna close because every so often you come across something that just really speaks to you, right? And over the past week or so, I came across a song that just speaks to this for me. And it's a song by David Crowder. It's called Anchor. And listen to what a couple of the lines say. It says, to all who have faltered, there is an altar. Bring your plea on bended knee, bow down. All you sons and daughters run to the father You're not too far from opened arms. Come home because there's an anchor. We can run to the Father. We can run home because he is our anchor. No matter what we do, he is our anchor and he is there for us. He's patiently waiting to forgive us, patiently waiting to show us off and to unconditionally love us for who we are, not what we've done. That's our hope on Father's Day and why we celebrate that God is the Father because he will not let us down. He will be there for us. Heavenly Father, these promises that you have given us, that you love us, that you forgive us, that you're you're, you're patient with us, you're patient with me when it's so obvious that we need to turn around and come back to you and we don't and you're still patient with us and you wait for us, and you long for us, and you you stand at the edge of town looking for the day that we are going to come back to you, ready to receive us with open arms. And you're always there because you are the anchor. And I pray that if there's anyone in this room that today that is the message they needed to hear, that they will run to you into your open, inviting, welcoming arms. Father, impress upon this that no matter what our father experience was growing up, whatever our experience with our dads are now, whatever experience we are as a father, you are the ultimate heavenly father who supersedes all of that and will love us unconditionally from before we are born till after we are dead because you are, you were, and you will always be. In your name we pray. We're going to have a time of response. If you'll stand.
Um, the band's going to play. If you want to pray about something that you heard today, I will be down here at front, or I'll grab you afterwards. We can, we can talk. Um, if you want to make this your church home, if you want to come and be part of our faith family, you, you just see that God's at work here, which he is, and you want to be a part of that, this would be a great time for that. If you just need to pray, the altar is here um, for you to come down and pray. So sing with us.